The Skull, Part Two by Philip K. Dick. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two. The man looked him over critically. You'd better come inside, he said, out of the cold. Thanks. Conger went gratefully through the open door into the living room. It was warm and close from the heat of the little kerosene heater in the corner. A woman, large and shapeless in her flowered dress, came from the kitchen. She and the man studied him critically. "'It's a good room,' the woman said. "'I'm Mrs. Appleton. It's got heat. You need that this time of year.' "'Yes,' he nodded, looking around. "'You want to eat with us?' "'What? You want to eat with us?' The man's brows knitted. "'You're not a foreigner, are you, mister?' No, he smiled. I was born in this country. Quite far west, though. California? No, he hesitated. In Oregon. What's it like up there? Mrs. Appleton asked. I hear there's a lot of trees and green. It's so barren here. I come from Chicago myself. That's the Middle West, the man said to her. You ain't no foreigner. Oregon isn't foreign either, Congress said. It's part of the United States. The man nodded absently. He was staring at Conger's clothing. "'That's a funny suit you got on, mister,' he said. "'Where'd you get that?' Conger was lost. He shifted uneasily. "'It's a good suit,' he said. "'Maybe I'd better go some other place, if you don't want me here.' They both raised their hands protestingly. The woman smiled at him. We just have to look out for those Reds. You know, the government is always warning us about them. The Reds? He was puzzled. The government says they're all around. We're supposed to report anything strange or unusual. Anybody doesn't act normal. Like me? They looked embarrassed. Well, you don't look like a Red to me, the man said. But we have to be careful. The Tribune says... Conger half listened. It was going to be easier than he had thought. Clearly he would know as soon as the founder appeared. These people, so suspicious of anything different, would be buzzing and gossiping and spreading the story. All he had to do was lie low and listen, down at the general store perhaps, or even here in Mrs. Appleton's boarding-house. "'Can I see the room?' he said. "'Certainly.' Mrs. Appleton went to the stairs. "'I'll be glad to show it to you.' They went upstairs. It was colder upstairs, but not nearly as cold as outside, nor as cold as nights on the Martian deserts. For that he was grateful. He was walking slowly around the store, looking at the cans of vegetables, the frozen packages of fish and meats shining and clean in the open refrigerator counters. Ed Davies came toward him. "'Can I help you?' he said. The man was a little oddly dressed, and with a beard. It couldn't help smiling. "'Nothing,' the man said in a funny voice. "'Just looking.' "'Sure,' Ed said. He walked back behind the counter. Mrs. Hackett was wheeling her cart up. "'Who's he?' she whispered. Her sharp face turned, her nose moving, as if it were sniffing. "'I've never seen him before.' "'I don't know.' "'Looks funny to me.' Why does he wear a beard? No one else wears a beard. Must be something the matter with him. Maybe he likes to wear a beard. I had an uncle who— Wait! Mrs. Hackett stiffened. Didn't that—what was his name? Uh, the Red, that old one. Didn't he have a beard? 
Marx. He had a beard. Ed laughed. <laughs> this isn't Karl Marx. I saw a photograph of him once. Mrs. Hackett was staring at him. You did? Sure. He flushed a little. What's the matter with that? I'd sure like to know more about him, Mrs. Hackett said. I think we ought to know more, for our own good. Hey, mister, want a ride? Conger turned quickly, dropping his hand to his belt. He relaxed. Two young kids in a car, a girl and a boy. He smiled at them. A ride? Sure. Conger got into the car and closed the door. Bill Willett pushed the gas and the car roared down the highway. I appreciate a ride, Conger said carefully. I was taking a walk between towns, but it was farther than I thought. Where are you from? Laura Hunt asked. She was pretty, small, and dark, in her yellow sweater and blue skirt. From Cooper Creek. Cooper Creek? Bill said. He frowned. That's funny. I don't remember seeing you before. Why do you come from there? I was born there. I know everybody there. Just moved in from Oregon. From Oregon? I didn't know Oregon people had accents. Do I have an accent? You use words funny. How? I don't know. Doesn't he, Laura? You slur them, Laura said, smiling. Talk some more. I'm interested in dialects. She glanced at him, white-teethed. Hunger felt his heart constrict. I have a speech impediment. Oh, her eyes widened. I'm sorry. They looked at him curiously as the car purred along. Conger, for his part, was struggling to find some way of asking them questions without seeming curious. I guess people from out of town don't come here much, he said. Strangers. No, Bill shook his head. Not very much. I'll bet I'm the first outsider for a long time. I guess so. Conger hesitated. A friend of mine, someone I know, might be coming through here. Where do you suppose I might— He stopped. Uh, would there be anyone certain to see him? Someone I could ask, make sure I don't miss him if he comes? They were puzzled. Just keep your eyes open. Cooper Creek isn't very big. No, uh, that's right. They drove in silence. Conger studied the outline of the girl. Probably she was the boy's mistress. Perhaps she was his trial wife. Or had they developed trial marriage back so far? He could not remember. But surely such an attractive girl would be somebody's mistress by this time. She would be sixteen or so by her looks. He might ask her sometime if they ever met again. The next day Conger went walking along the one main street of Cooper Creek. He passed the general store, the two filling stations, and then the post office. At the corner was the soda fountain. He stopped. Laura was sitting inside talking to the clerk. She was laughing, rocking back and forth. Conger pushed the door open. Warm air rushed around him. Laura was drinking hot chocolate with whipped cream. She looked up in surprise as he slid into the seat beside her. I beg your pardon, he said. Am I intruding? No, she shook her head. Her eyes were large and dark. Not at all. The clerk came over. What do you want? Conger looked at the chocolate. Same as she has. Laura was watching Conger, her arms folded, elbows on the counter. She smiled at him. By the way, you don't know my name. Laura Hunt. She was holding out her hand. He took it, awkwardly, not knowing what to do with it. Conger is my name, he murmured. Conger? Is that your last or first name? 
Last or first? He hesitated. Uh, last. Omar Conger. Omar, she laughed. <laughs> That's like the poet Omar Khayyam. I don't know of him. I know very little of poets. We restored very few works of art. Usually only the church had been interested enough. He broke off. She was staring. He flushed. Where I come from, he finished. The church? Which church do you mean? The church. He was confused. The chocolate came, and he began to sip it gratefully. Laura was still watching him. You're an unusual person, she said. Bill didn't like you, but he never likes anything different. He's so, so prosaic. Don't you think that when a person gets older he should become broadened in his outlook? Conger nodded. He says foreign people ought to stay where they belong, not come here. But you're not so foreign. He means Orientals, you know. Conger nodded. The screen door opened behind them. Bill came into the room. He stared at them. Well, he said. Conger turned. Hello. Well, Bill sat down. Hello, Laura. He was looking at Conger. I didn't expect to see you here. Conger tensed. He could feel the hostility of the boy. Something wrong with that? No, nothing wrong with it. There was silence. Suddenly Bill turned to Laura. Come on, let's go. Go? She was astonished. Why? Just go. He grabbed her hand. Come on, the car's outside. Why, Bill Willett, Laura said. You're jealous. Who is this guy? Bill said. Do you know anything about him? Look at him. His beard. She flared. So what? Just because he doesn't drive a Packard and go to Cooper High? Conger sized the boy up. He was big, big and strong. Probably he was part of some civil control organization. Sorry, Conger said. I'll go. What's your business in town? Bill asked. What are you doing here? Why are you hanging around Laura? Conger looked at the girl. He shrugged. No reason. I'll see you later. He turned away and froze. Bill had moved. Conger's fingers went to his belt. Half pressure, he whispered to himself. No more. Half pressure. He squeezed. The room leaped around him. He himself was protected by the lining of his clothing, the plastic sheathing inside. My God! Laura put her hands up. Conger cursed. He hadn't meant any of it for her, but it would wear off. There was only a half-amp to it. It would tingle. Tingle and paralyze. He walked out the door without looking back. He was almost to the corner when Bill came slowly out, holding on to the wall like a drunken man. Conger went on. As Conger walked, restless in the night, a form loomed in front of him. He stopped, holding his breath. Who is it? A man's voice came. Conger waited, tense. Who is it? The man said again. He clicked something in his hand. A light flashed. Conger moved. It's me, he said. Who is me? Uh, Conger is my name. I'm staying at the Appleton's place. Who are you? The man came slowly up to him. He was wearing a leather jacket. There was a gun at his waist. I'm Sheriff Duff. I think you're the person I want to talk to. You were in Bloom's today about three o'clock. Bloom's? The fountain, where the kids hang out. Duff came up beside him, shining his light into Conger's face. Conger blinked. 
Turn that thing away, he said. A pause. All right. The light flickered to the ground. You were there. Some trouble broke out between you and the Willet boy. Is that right? You had a beef over his girl. We had a discussion, Congress said carefully. Then what happened? Why? I'm just curious. They say you did something. Did something? Did what? I don't know. That's what I'm wondering. They saw a flash, and something seemed to happen. They all blacked out. Couldn't move. How are they now? All right. There was a silence. Well, Duff said, what was it? A bomb? A bomb? Conger laughed. No, my cigarette lighter caught fire. There was a leak, and the fluid ignited. Why did they all pass out? Uh, fumes. Silence. Conger shifted, waiting. His finger moved slowly toward his belt. The sheriff glanced down. He grunted. <laughs> if you say so, he said. Anyhow, there wasn't any real harm done. He stepped back from Conger. And that Willet is a troublemaker. Good night, then, Conger said. He started past the sheriff. One more thing, Mr. Conger, before you go. You don't mind if I look at your identification, do you? No, not at all. Conger reached into his pocket. He held his wallet out. The sheriff took it and shined his flashlight on it. Conger watched, breathing shallowly. They had worked hard on the wallet, studying historic documents, relics of the times, all the papers they felt would be relevant. Duff handed it back. Okay, sorry to bother you. The light winked off. When Conger reached the house, he found the Appletons sitting around the television set. They did not look up as he came in. He lingered at the door. Can I ask you something? he said. Mrs. Appleton turned slowly. Can I ask you, what's the date? The date? She studied him. The first of December. December first? Why, it was just November. They were all looking at him. Suddenly he remembered. In the twentieth century they still used the old twelve-month system. November fed directly into December. There was no core timber between. He gasped. Then it was tomorrow, the second of December. Tomorrow. Uh, thanks, he said. Thanks. He went up the stairs. What a fool he was, forgetting. A founder had been taken into captivity on the 2nd of December, according to the newspaper records. Tomorrow, only twelve hours hence, the founder would appear to speak to the people and then be dragged away. The day was warm and bright. Conger's shoes crunched the melting crust of snow. On he went, through the trees, heavy with white. He climbed a hill and strode down the other side, sliding as he went. He stopped to look around. Everything was silent. There was no one in sight. He brought a thin rod from his waist and turned the handle of it. For a moment nothing happened. Then there was a shimmering in the air. The crystal cage appeared and settled down slowly. Congress sighed. It was good to see it again. After all, it was his only way back. He walked up on the ridge. He looked around with some satisfaction, his hands on his hips. Hudson's field was spread out all the way to the beginning of town. It was bare and flat, covered with a thin layer of snow. Here the founder would come, here he would speak to them. 
and here the authorities would take him. Only he would be dead before they came. He would be dead before he even spoke. Conger returned to the crystal globe. He pushed through the door and stepped inside. He took the slim gun from the shelf and screwed the bolt into place. It was ready to go, ready to fire. For a moment he considered, should he have it with him? No, it might be hours before the founder came, and suppose someone approached him in the meantime. When he saw the founder coming toward the field, then he would go and get the gun. Conger looked toward the shelf. There was the neat plastic package. He took it down and unwrapped it. He held the skull in his hands, turning it over. In spite of himself a cold feeling rushed through him. This was the man's skull, the skull of the founder who was still alive, who would come here this day, who would stand on the field not fifty yards away. What if he could see this, his own skull, yellow and eroded, two centuries old? Would he still speak? Would he speak if he could see it, the grinning, aged skull? What would there be for him to say, to tell people? What message could he bring? What action would not be futile, when a man could look upon his own aged, yellowed skull? Better they should enjoy their temporary lives while they still had them to enjoy. A man who could hold his own skull in his hands would believe in few causes, few movements. Rather, he would preach the opposite. A sound. Conger dropped the skull back on the shelf and took up the gun. Outside something was moving. He went quickly to the door, his heart beating. Was it he? Was it the founder? Wandering by himself in the cold, looking for a place to speak? Was he meditating over his words, choosing his sentences? What if he could see what Conger had held? He pushed the door open, the gun raised. Laura! He stared at her. She was dressed in a wool jacket and boots, her hands in her pockets. A cloud of steam came from her mouth and nostrils. Her breast was rising and falling. Silently they looked at each other. At last Conger lowered the gun. What is it? he said. What are you doing here? She pointed. She did not seem able to speak. He frowned. What was wrong with her? What is it? he said. What do you want? He looked in the direction she had pointed. I don't see anything. They're coming. They? Who? Who are coming? They are the police. During the night the sheriff had the state police send cars. All around, everywhere. Blocking the roads, there's about sixty of them coming. Some from town, some around behind. She stopped gasping. They said, they said, what? They said you were some kind of a communist. They said. Conger went into the cage. He put the gun down on the shelf and came back out. He leaped down and went to the girl. Thanks. You came here to tell me? You don't believe it? I don't know. Did you come alone? No. Joe brought me in his truck from town. Joe? Who's he? Joe French, the plumber. He's a friend of Dad's. Let's go. They crossed the snow up the ridge and onto the field. The little panel truck was parked halfway across the field. A heavy, short man was sitting behind the wheel, smoking his pipe. He sat up as he saw the two of them coming toward him. 
"'Are you the one?' he said to Conger. "'Yes. Thanks for warning me.' The plumber shrugged. "'I don't know anything about this. Laura says you're all right.' He turned around. "'It might interest you to know some more of them are coming. Not to warn you. Just curious.' "'More of them?' Conger looked toward the town. Black shapes were picking their way across the snow. "'People from the town. You can't keep this sort of thing quiet. Not in a small town.' We all listened to the police radio. They heard the same way Laura did. Someone tuned in, spread it around. The shapes were getting closer. Conger could make out a couple of them. Bill Willett was there with some boys from the high school. The Appletons were along, hanging back in the rear. Even Ed Davies, Conger murmured. The storekeeper was toiling onto the field with three or four other men from the town. All curious as hell, French said. Well, I guess I'm going back to town. I don't want my truck shot full of holes. Come on, Laura. She was looking up at Conger, wide-eyed. Come on, French said. Let's go. You sure as hell can't stay here, you know. Why? There may be shooting. That's what they all came to see. You know that, don't you, Conger? Yes. You have a gun, or don't you care? French smiled a little. They've picked up a lot of people in their time, you know. You won't be lonely. He cared all right. He had to stay here on the field. He couldn't afford to let them take him away. Any minute the founder would appear, would step onto the field. Would he be one of the townsmen, standing silently at the foot of the field, waiting, watching? Or maybe he was Joe French. Or maybe one of the cops. Any one of them might find himself moved to speak and the few words spoken this day were going to be important for a long time. And Conger had to be there, ready when the first word was uttered. I care, he said. You go on back to town. Take the girl with you. Laura got stiffly in beside Joe French. The plumber started up the motor. Look at them, standing there, he said, like vultures, waiting to see someone get killed. The truck drove away, Laura sitting stiff and silent, frightened now. Conger watched for a moment, then he dashed back into the woods between the trees toward the ridge. He could get away, of course. Any time he wanted to, he could get away. All he had to do was to leap into the crystal cage and turn the handles. But he had a job, an important job. He had to be here, here at this place, at this time. He reached the cage and opened the door. He went inside and picked up the gun from the shelf. The slim gun would take care of them. He notched it up to full count. The chain reaction from it would flatten them all. The police, the curious, sadistic people, they wouldn't take him. Before they got him, all of them would be dead. He would get away. He would escape. By the end of the day they would all be dead, if that was what they wanted. And he—he he saw the skull. Suddenly he put the gun down. He picked up the skull. He turned the skull over. He looked at the teeth. Then he went to the mirror. He held the skull up, looking in the mirror. He pressed the skull against his cheek. Beside his own face the grinning skull leered back at him. Beside his skull against his living flesh. 
He bared his teeth, and he knew. It was his own skull that he held. He was the one who would die. He was the founder. After a time he put the skull down. For a few minutes he stood at the controls, playing with them idly. He could hear the sound of motors outside, the muffled noise of men. Should he go back to the present, where the speaker waited? He could escape, of course. Escape? He turned toward the skull. There it was. His skull, yellow with age. <laughs> escape? Escape? When he had held it in his own hands? What did it matter if he put it off a month, a year, ten years, even fifty? Time was nothing. He had sipped chocolate with a girl born a hundred and fifty years before his time. Escape? For a little while, perhaps. But he could not really escape. No more than anyone else has ever escaped, or ever would. Only he had held it in his hands, his own bones, his own death's head. They had not. He went out the door and across the field empty-handed. There were a lot of them standing around, gathered together, waiting. They expected a good fight. <laughs> they knew he had something. They had heard about the incident at the fountain. And there were plenty of police. Police with guns and tear gas, creeping across the hills and ridges, between the trees, closer and closer. It was an old story in this century. One of the men tossed something at him. It fell in the snow by his feet, and he looked down. It was a rock. He smiled. Come on, one of them called. Don't you have any bombs? Throw a bomb. You with the beard, throw a bomb. Let him have it. Toss a few A-bombs. They began to laugh. He smiled. He put his hands to his hips. They suddenly turned silent, seeing that he was going to speak. I'm sorry, he said simply. I don't have any bombs. You're mistaken. There was a flurry of murmuring. I have a gun, he went on, a very good one made by science even more advanced than your own, but I'm not going to use that either. They were puzzled. Why not? someone called. At the edge of the group an older woman was watching. He felt a sudden shock. He had seen her before. Where? He remembered the day at the library. As he had turned the corner he had seen her. She had noticed him and been astounded. At the time he did not understand why. Conger grinned. So he would escape death, the man who right now was voluntarily accepting it. They were laughing, laughing at a man who had a gun but didn't use it. But by a strange twist of science he would appear again, a few months later, after his bones had been buried under the floor of a jail. And so in a fashion he would escape death. He would die, but then, after a period of months, he would live again, briefly, for an afternoon, an afternoon, yet long enough for them to see him, to understand that he was still alive, to know that somehow he had returned to life. And then, finally, he would appear once more, after two hundred years had passed, two centuries later. He would be born again born, as a matter of fact, in a small trading village on Mars. He would grow up, learning to hunt and trade. 
A police car came on the edge of the field and stopped. The people retreated a little. Conger raised his hands. I have an odd paradox for you, he said. Those who take lives will lose their own. Those who kill will die. But he who gives his own life away will live again. They laughed faintly, nervously. The police were coming, walking toward him. He smiled. He had said everything he intended to say. It was a good little paradox he had coined. They would puzzle over it, remember it. Smiling, Conger awaited a death foreordained. End of The Skull by Philip K. Dick This story read by Phil Chenevere in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, October 2012